0: Good morning. <coughs> so, uh, quick update. <coughs> I don't know if you heard, Caleb is really sick. He's got, uh, I guess, double ear infection. And uh, he probably should have gone to the doctor on Friday. He's going today to urgent care. But uh, he, I guess he can't hear and uh, he and Natalie have been communicating by texting each other in their apartment face-to-face because his hearing is so bad from the infection. So be praying for him. And <clears throat> if you're wondering why my face looks like this, all splotchy and red, but you were too kind to ask. It's just I contracted a mild case of leprosy when I was in Uganda, and it's only mildly contagious no, i was kidding. That's not what it is. <clears throat> it's actually a chemical treatment that I go through every couple of years that treats pre-cancerous lesions in the skin. So it burns it out so it doesn't turn into skin cancer. So, uh, yeah, so I have to do it for a couple of weeks. This is my last day of treatment. And then it takes about two weeks for it to go back to normal. So. But the leprosy story sounds a lot better. Anyway, so, um, yeah, let's pray, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together uh, this morning. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to worship with the body of Christ. Just pray that you would open our eyes and our our hearts to receive instruction from your word. Pray that we would be encouraged, convicted, and transformed into Christ's likeness. Pray that all that we do today would glorify and honor you. And certainly we do lift up Caleb this morning. Pray that you would um, heal. And pray that you would um, just comfort he and Natalie um, in this uh, physical suffering. And thank you for his ministry here. And certainly uh, he is missed when um, when not present. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, last week we uh, considered... Christ's death on the cross, uh, how that impacted him, um, and uh, what was accomplished for us. Now, This morning, <clears throat> we're going to look at the next big event, the next significant event in the life of Christ, and that, of course, was his resurrection. <clears throat> so let me begin uh, the study with a quote from John Stott, uh, old theologian, Bible teacher, English he said, authentic Christianity, the Christianity of Christ and the apostles, is supernatural Christianity. It is not a tame and harmless ethic consisting of moral platitudes spiced with a dash of religion. It is a resurrection religion, a life lived by the power of God. The Apostle Paul said something similar to that a few thousand years earlier in regards to the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15:3 through 4. He said, "For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures." So, this is one of the realities of the Christian faith that sets it apart from all other religions. And it is a reality that Christianity absolutely depends on. The actual physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, the crucified, dead, and buried Son of God, is absolutely crucial to Christianity without that bodily resurrection of Christ, there would be no Christianity. There would be no gospel. There would be no hope. There would be no future for Christians. It would have ended on the cross. So the fact is, um, that's exactly what the disciples were thinking when Jesus died. They were devastated. And with his death, they undoubtedly stumbled away and stunned disbelief, uh, the one that they had sacrificed everything for, the one that they had followed for three years, that they'd learned from, that they'd believed in, the one that they had loved and acknowledged to be the Son of God, the one who was the Messiah, was dead. So how could that possibly be? Had they all been fooled, had they wasted three years of their lives, Now, they may have been experiencing self-condemnation as well uh, for their lack of faithfulness, and certainly there was fear and doubt uh, since they were now leaderless, paralysis as to what to do next, where to go, what to believe, grief over loss, possibly even anger over the possibility that maybe they had been duped, and maybe all those feelings uh, were experienced at once. It was overwhelming for them, overwhelming grief, despair, disappointment, and that probably brought them to a place of total inaction and emotional numbness. Now, the next day after the crucifixion, that Sabbath most likely was the worst Sabbath that they had ever experienced in their lives. The day before, uh, some of them had witnessed the actual, the final moments of the final words, the last breath that Jesus breathed before he died on the cross. And some of them um, had no doubt run away into the darkness, unable to watch the agony of his death on the cross. But at this point, everyone knew that he was dead. They all knew he'd been, he was going to be buried in the tomb of Joseph, of Arimathea, and at the end of that Sabbath, what would be next? Would they go back to their old lives? Uh, Would the relationship between the remaining uh, 11 disciples, would that fall apart? Would their love and care for one another just disintegrate? Would they go back to their former routines, no longer living out their calling as ambassadors for the Messiah, the King? No more casting out demons. No more healing the sick. No more preaching the kingdom. Well, whatever was going through their minds, whatever they were feeling or experiencing, when the empty tomb was discovered, that changed everything. Radically changed absolutely everything about what they were going through. And then in the years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus, there were, there were numerous so-called messiahs and messianic movements that rose up, but all of those self-proclaimed messiahs <clears throat> died, and they stayed buried. They stayed dead, and all their followers faded away. And that was not the case with Christianity. Months, years, decades, centuries, even millennia, After Jesus had been murdered on the cross at Calvary and after the resurrection, if you ask somebody why they were a Christian, the response would uh, most certainly have been because of the resurrection, because the Lord is risen. Now, the resurrection actually did happen. It was a real event in time and history it was well-recorded, it was well-documented, it was not a fiction, it was not a myth, it was not a made-up story by his followers to keep this movement going. There were actual eyewitnesses who had walked with Jesus, they talked with Jesus, they ate meals with Jesus, and any number of those witnesses, if you asked them about him, they could tell you what he said. They could tell you what it was like being with him again after that resurrection. And the Apostle Paul, years later, writing to the Corinthians, spoke about those many witnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, it says, Then he appeared, speaking of Jesus, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, those 500 witnesses, um, undoubtedly, you could have asked them, why are you Christians? And uh, their response would have been the same as those that we mentioned earlier. It would have been, because he has risen. I'm a Christian because of the resurrection. Again, the resurrection was an actual event in history. It took place in an actual place, took place at an actual time in the history of the world, and it was witnessed and recorded by real people. Christianity is a religion that is based on historical realities. It's based on facts, and it's grounded in the historical reality, the fact of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. Everything falls apart if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And Paul, again, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19, says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So, you see... The resurrection is absolutely necessary to Christianity. Without it, our faith is useless. There's no salvation. There's no gospel. There's no hope. There's no future. No future resurrection for believers who've been fooled. There's no heaven. No living in the presence of God for eternity. All of that is a pathetic dream because we're still dead in our sins. If there was no physical resurrection... If Jesus is still dead and long ago decomposed in that tomb, we are without hope. But, of course, he has risen from the dead. Even though there have always been doubters and mockers, and in the 20th and 21st century, uh, with the rise of postmodern thought and philosophy, the challenges to the historical reality of Christ's resurrection. Uh, That has increased because postmodern thought has affected uh, everything um, as far as how we understand the world. So history is no longer a matter matter of objective, verifiable facts, and uh, even the knowability of history is questioned. All you can know is what people think or feel about the past, what's their opinion. And that, of course, is all relative. What's real for you may not be my reality. And that is absolute garbage. Uh, It leads to all kinds of ridiculous, unverifiable, outrageous speculation about the historical Jesus, uh, about the resurrection. I don't know uh, how many of you remember the, uh, the Jesus Seminar. From the '80s and the '90s, um, if you do remember that, well, if you don't remember it, it was a, basically a bunch of unbelievers, uh, unbelieving scholars, authors, philosophers, educators, etc. And they got together and they tore apart Scripture, and they came up with all kinds of speculative, actually ridiculous, ideas about what Jesus was really like and what actually happened in first century Palestine. So just a few of those ideas were that, uh, first of all, Jesus never died, and it wasn't just, you may have heard of the swoon theory, that he just kind of passed out, but then he revived. This, they went a little bit further than that. They said that uh, Jesus, Jesus didn't die because he was given a drug by one of the thieves on one of the other crosses, and that thief was actually a doctor, okay? This is legitimately one of their theories. And that drug that this doctor, who was a thief, thieving doctor, um, helped him to survive. And so he just appeared dead for a while. It's kind of like that Romeo and Juliet thing with the, you know, the drug that made her appear dead. Anyway, then Jesus, uh, after he revived, uh, he traveled around with uh, the Apostle Paul and eventually got married had a bunch of kids, and, uh, yeah, people bought into that, okay? Uh, They bought into that theory, even though there was not a single shred of evidence to back it up. And then another claim uh, made a few years later by by James Cameron, that's the director of the Titanic, Uh, he made a documentary in 2007 based on the discovery of some ossuaries in Jerusalem So an ossuary uh, contains uh, bones. Bones are stored in ossuaries. And he found, uh, they discovered these ossuaries in Jerusalem. And one of them was labeled uh, Jesus, son of Joseph. Uh, Another was labeled Mary. And then another was labeled Judah, son of Jesus. So, of course, that was proof that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and they had a son. So clearly the whole biblical account was false, and people jumped on board with that, um, even though the most skeptical people of all of this, of this explanation were uh, unbelieving Jewish scholars, okay? Because the reason for that was because Jesus was one of the most common names in first century Palestine, first century Israel. There were literally thousands of men named Jesus. And Mary and Judah were also extremely common names. But people believed this documentary because it was so sensational, and they, you know, would rather believe something that had virtually no evidence or support from a legitimate scholarly community uh, rather than the well-documented accounts of Scripture. And the main reason They didn't, or the main reason they did believe this account was because they just don't want to believe the truth. So, anyway, resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity is a joke, and we are without hope. But it did happen, and this morning we're going to look at uh, some of the biblical evidence in the Gospel of John, and we're going to focus particularly on the experience of Mary Magdalene, Peter. And John uh, to demonstrate the reality, the truth of the resurrection. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John 20, and we'll just read through this section, 21 through 23. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So, prior to them arriving at the tomb, Jesus was dead. His heart had stopped beating. He had stopped breathing there were no brain waves if he'd been hooked up to an eeg and how can we know that for sure well a couple of reasons first of all the roman soldiers were highly experienced effective and competent killers they could kill people they knew how to do it and they did a good job at it they knew how to kill people they were good at killing And they knew what they were doing, and when they saw that Jesus was dead, they knew he was dead, and they made sure by stabbing him in the side. And John records this earlier in um, chapter 19, verses 34 and 36, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water <clears throat> he who saw it has borne witness his testimony is true and he knows um, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled <clears throat> now <clears throat> this whole thing about the blood and water coming out when he was stabbed i want to read to you a medical ex- explanation of why that happened why there was blood and water, and why that's clear evidence of death. So crucifixion typically resulted in death through one of two ways. The first uh, way was hypovolemic shock. The prolonged rapid heartbeat resulting from hypovolemic shock can cause fluid to gather in the area around the heart. This is called pericardial effusion. The second way death often occurred during crucifixion was due to asphyxiation. This simply means the person is unable to breathe in enough oxygen to survive, so suffocation. Crucifixion victims typically had to pull their weight up with their hands or wrists uh, that were nailed to the crossbeam along with pushing up with the feet or ankles that had another nail through them, and over time, the ability to push up to breathe would end and oxygen flow would be restricted, and this asphyxiation can also result in the buildup of fluid around the heart. So in either case, the account of John is quite accurate. The Roman executioner saw that the other two crucifixion victims were still alive and they broke their legs, so they would no longer be able to push themselves up to breathe, resulting in death within a few minutes. And in the case of Jesus, they saw that he had become unconscious, likely he was already dead, but to confirm that, they shoved a spear into his side, likely under his ribs, and that ruptured the pericardial sac, resulting in a flow of both blood and water, which would indicate hypovolemic shock and death. Now, what's amazing is that John would record this minor detail of death that would be verified by modern science a couple thousand years later so yeah jesus was dead and then uh, a speedy burial is arranged so that he's buried before the sabbath and there were two key individuals um witnesses who were involved in that burial nicodemus and joseph of arimathea And Jesus is wrapped in linen cloth and packed in the wrapping, packed inside that wrapping, between the wrapping, the bandages, and his flesh, was about 75 pounds, 75 pounds of spices, myrrh and aloe. And all this was done in order to slow down the decay, the putrefaction of the flesh. And you'd think if Jesus wasn't really dead he would have woke up during this process of wrapping him and embalming him. And even if he didn't wake up, he certainly would have suffocated when his head was wrapped, tightly wrapped, and stuffed with all of these spices. But he didn't wake up because he was dead. Roman soldiers confirmed his death. The Jews confirmed his death. <clears throat> Nicodemus confirmed his death, Joseph confirmed his death, John, confi- everybody confirmed that he was dead. It wasn't just one or two people. And nobody was expecting or preparing uh, for a resurrection. He was dead, and they figured he was going to stay dead. So then the next significant thing that happens is you have these women that show up at the tomb on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and some others come to the tomb at first light, and they are the first ones to witness that Jesus has been resurrected. And the reason this is so significant is because if you were making up this resurrection story, you most certainly would not have a bunch of women as your first and primary witnesses. No offense. That would have been unthinkable by first-century Jewish standards because a woman's testimony was considered unreliable, untrustworthy, untrustworthy and it was actually inadmissible in, in a Jewish court. So, sorry, ladies, uh, we have come a long way since then, but back in the day, nobody would have believed you. So the only reasonable explanation for John recording this is because that's what actually happened, okay? Mary and a number of other women were the first witnesses. Now, Mary, uh, she comes to the tomb, sees that Jesus is gone, and she assumes that his body has been stolen. And that possibility had already been anticipated by the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling Jewish council, And that's recorded in Matthew 27, 62 through 66. It says, The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, uh, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Uh, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, of course, that's not what happened, uh, but Mary is convinced that it is what happened. So she runs off to tell Peter and John. Uh, Then John includes uh, this detail in the narrative, it's kind of funny, that would actually support the uh, accuracy uh, or the verifiability of these eyewitnesses or the eyewitness account, because the detail doesn't actually have anything to do with moving the the narrative forward. He says, John, speaking about himself, uh, John outran Peter. And that's kind of interesting that he would include that. I mean, maybe there was some apostolic rivalry going on between the two of them. Uh, but anyway, John gets there first, and he pauses outside the tomb. But Peter arrives uh, right behind him, and he rushes straight into the tomb. And what they see is the linen cloths lying there, and the cloth that had wrapped Jesus' face and head is separate. It's all folded up. Um, so what happened during the night is not recorded, okay? But it's possible that Jesus' body, which was wrapped again, they um, you say it was wrapped almost twice its actual size with all of the spices and the bandages, it is possible that his body <clears throat> passed through the cloth Uh, deflating the wrapping, and his resurrected body appeared, recognizable as Jesus, but with this new power and ability that comes with glorification. However it happened, Jesus was resurrected in a real physical body. He walked, he talked, he breathed, he ate, he drank, okay? He could be touched, and at the same time, uh, he could appear and disappear Uh, as he did in the upper room when the doors were locked, so not quite the same. Peter and John uh, see that Jesus is gone, but they still haven't seen Jesus, and uh, then they head back home. Now, Mary's still there, and she's looking into the tomb, weeping. Uh, She sees these two individuals who are angels, and they ask her why she's crying. Well, I mean, I think we can figure that out. She's crying because she still thinks that Jesus has been stolen. Um, she hears a voice behind her, which at first she doesn't recognize uh, and thinks it's the gardener. Uh, she pleads with him that if he's taken the body, to tell her where it is, and she will uh, take him away. Mary loved Jesus. She loved the Lord. She's heartbroken. She's devastated at the loss and she wants him to be honored and cared for even in his death. And, you know, why she didn't recognize Jesus when she first turned, that again is not recorded, may simply be because she wasn't looking uh, directly at him. Um, Maybe. And that does seem to be supported by John's um, account, because at one point, or Right after that, he speaks her name, and then she turns, I guess, and looks fully at him and recognizes him, and then she apparently embraces him. Uh, so again, first person to see the resurrected Lord was a woman, Mary Magdalene. And John's record makes it pretty clear that the disciples, again, were not expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. Nobody was, They were, and they weren't any more superstitious or gullible than modern people are although um, they are accused of that. 2,000 years ago, dead people just didn't come back to life. They generally stayed dead. And that was the predominant thinking uh, of the time, including Sadducees uh, who absolutely denied physical resurrection. And even Lazarus' sister um, understood that resurrection would take place in the eschatological future, way in the future uh, on the last day, and that's recorded in John eleven twenty four. 24, her words. <clears throat> anyway, going back to Mary, Jesus physically resurrected. He's not a ghost, okay? In her joy and excitement, she grabs hold of him, so he is in physical form. Um, he can be touched. He can be held onto. Um, he is, or he has human shape and substance, supposedly, or presumably flesh and bones. He's not some ethereal spirit being. But then Jesus tells her not to hold on to him uh, because he's not yet ascended. And this is likely because um, the resurrection or his resurrection was not like Lazarus, uh, but it was the first stage of his ultimate exaltation when he would ascend to the right hand of the Father. So he says, don't cling to me, but go tell my brothers I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Sinclair Ferguson says, uh, Mary is to be his messenger, to tell the apostles that the promise he had given them in the upper room was now coming true. He would not leave them as orphans. They are being adopted as the children of God, as his brothers. They are family now. His God is their God. His Father is theirs too. And the awesome thing about that is that is true of everyone who trusts in Christ and His saving work on the cross and His resurrection. We are His brothers and sisters. Through the resurrected Son of God, we are adopted into the family of God and He is now our Father. So, That's how it happened. And John and the other Gospels go on to relate more details after uh, the resurrection, and the rest of the New Testament uh, explains the full uh, theological significance of um, his death and resurrection. But initially, one thing is certain Mary believed, John believed, Peter believed, the rest of the disciples believed that Jesus had conquered death and the grave Jesus was risen so now i want <clears throat> to i want to touch on a few of the things that were uh, accomplished in the resurrection what was the significance of the resurrection theologically so <clears throat> first of all he was victorious over death victorious over sin and its consequences he was victorious over our guilt for sin he was victorious over the evil one Over the ruler of this world, over the devil. And John and all the other believers believed that. Um, In many churches around the world, uh, the Apostles' Creed is recited in unison by their members. We don't do that. Uh, But the Creed is a very basic summary of the gospel. And I want to read to you what uh, Sinclair Ferguson uh, says about the Apostles' Creed as it relates to the resurrection and to Christ's victory. He says, in the Creed, Christians confess their faith in the Father as the Creator, the Son as the Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit. They also celebrate the privileges of belonging to the fellowship of the church, the blessing of the gospel, and the end of the world. The Creed tells us that Jesus Christ descended into hell. Now, that expression has been variously understood and interpreted But it surely reminds us, among other elements, that on the cross, Jesus engaged the powers of darkness. Paul tells us he disarmed them and triumphed over them. In his own hours of shame, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's Colossians 2.15. John himself says elsewhere, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil in 1 John 3.8. The empty tomb was the first sign that this battle with the forces of darkness had not only been engaged, but that in it Christ had triumphed. In Peter's words on the day of Pentecost, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He was not abandoned to Hades, Acts 2.24. So the empty tomb was a sign of his victory over sin, over death, and hell. And the implication of that is that Satan can now never triumph over someone who has sought and found refuge in the resurrected Christ. And then in Romans 8, 34, it says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is is interceding for us. So, victory over sin, death, and Satan. And then a few more points on what was accomplished. Um, Those are stated in Romans uh, chapter 4 verses 24 through uh, chapter 5 verse 1. It says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, his resurrection secured our justification before God. <clears throat> And justification is when God declares that we are no longer considered guilty under his divine and holy law, but we are forgiven, we're counted righteous before God. Christ paid the penalty for sin in dying on the cross, and he demonstrated that full satisfaction of God's righteous wrath against sin was accomplished when he was raised from the dead. Christ died and rose from the dead in victory over sin and its consequences, including death, which secured our justification. Because Christ rose in victory, we can no longer be condemned. We are justified, and we gain that justification through faith in his death and resurrection. So, no matter what sin uh, may do to us living in this sin-cursed and fallen world, Christ has conquered that final enemy, death. And the day is coming when we will rise from the grave. We will receive a new resurrection body, just like the Lord's, and we will no longer suffer under the curse of sin. We will live forever in his presence. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, and all of that is a result of his death and resurrection. Now... Um, One final point, we also now are at peace with God. Once we were rebels and enemies under his wrath and condemnation, but again, because of Christ's death and resurrection, we are justified and no longer fear that righteous judgment because it was poured out on our Lord and Savior. Romans 5, 8 through 10 says this uh, very clearly, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And again, Romans uh, 4, 24 through 5, 1, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All that was accomplished in <clears throat> the death and resurrection of Jesus. Victory over sin, death, and Satan, justification before God, and peace with God. Without Christ's resurrection, none of this um, is secured. None of it would have been possible. Again, there would have been no gospel, no good news, no Christianity, no hope. 1 Corinthians 15:17 through 19 would have been true. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But we know, and we can say, like those first witnesses, he didn't stay dead. The tomb is empty. He is risen. Amen? So um, it's time for you to go, but if you have any questions, take a few questions.